Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you for joining us this hour. Uh, before the break, uh, as we were discussing some of these big issues that are dominating uh, the conversation, not just in the United States, but globally. Uh, if you watched the Republican debate, uh, if you're able to make it through that circus uh, earlier in the week, uh, which was filmed at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, a wonderful theatrical backdrop for the theater of the absurd, the number one subject uh, which dominated that discussion, which is absolutely driving the conversation, unfortunately, uh, is this, uh, it's beyond Islamophobia. It's, uh, it's hysteria, which is obsession. I can't describe it any other way. I never saw this in my lifetime, uh, not in the United States, not even after 9-11. Was it this insane? And I use that term. Uh, very conservatively, this insane. So our next guest, um, I think, is going to be able to give us some different insights on this. Now, our next guest is a is a best-selling author. Uh, he's an accomplished artist and musician. He's been on this show before. And his name is Gilad Atzman. And recently, you know, I, I, I've been almost disturbed by the rhetoric and the nonsensical uh, direction in which the political conversation is going, especially after the Paris attacks, but even after the San Bernardino attacks. So I was flying to 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 Portland uh, last week, and I brought I, I brought Gillard's book with me, which is called The Wandering Who, because I just thought I needed a break. I needed a break from from terrorism, from false flag attacks, uh, from uh, ISIS. From Syria. So I crack open this book called The Wandering Who, which is a fantastic book. It's timeless because it's even more relevant today than it was when it was given to me by the author, uh, mm-hmm. our guest Gilad Atzman. And I crack this book, Gilad, and I'm reading it, and it's almost like it's talking to me about today's events. And I, I'm not going to try to over blow your credentials here but i'm gonna have to tell you this is a fantastic book and and i couldn't have said that two years ago three years ago because it's more fantastic to me now because (laughs) of how relevant it is to the conversation of Um, identity politics today um thank you so much brother it's like um it's uh, you know i admire what you're doing and uh you know to 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 be complimented by you is, means a lot to me. Uh, but it's quite easy to explain why um, the book is becoming more relevant. Um, I'm not a political person and I'm not a political writer. Uh, I'm a, an essentialist, uh, which is a domain of uh, thinking that is pretty much uh, prohibited by uh, um, contemp- contemporary left. Uh, rather than telling activists what they should do, or what they should say, and what they shouldn't say, and so on and so on, my task is uh, quite different. I try to refine the questions. 
you know, I believe that once we understand what the questions are, uh, we are then ready uh, to move forward and to think of few different answers and to consider them uh, properly. And I think that this is something that neither our intellectuals um, not, uh, and definitely our politicians are uh, uh, capable of doing. You know, when you look at the work of people like uh, um, Noam Chomsky, for instance, or, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to Palestine, you know, uh, um, you know, you follow JVP and all those kind of uh, very uh, Jewy pseudo-intellectual schools of so- thought, uh, all you see is uh, jargon. They tell you what you are entitled to say, how to say it, and what you are not entitled to engage with. And uh, in, on the long term, we are um, um, submerged by blindness. We don't see meter ahead. We don't even understand what is our role within all that mess. And this is what I try to clarify in the Wandering Goo. I believe that in order to understand the world in which we are living, we have to look into identity. What is identity or what is identity politics? It is the attempt to understand um, what, not what it means to be a Jew, what it means to identify as a Jew. Similarly, I don't ask what it means to be a homosexual, which is, you know, I think that there are quite few uh, ways to de- de- describe it in the clinical terms, you know, in terms of love to your own gender and people of your own type and so on and so on. I ask what does it mean to identify as a gay. And we can take the question, I think that this is what you feel yourself, we can take this question one step farther now and to make it very contemporary and to ask what does it mean to identify as a Muslim or to identify politically as a Muslim. And once we delve into this question, we start to understand the crisis uh, in which we are living. We start to understand why at ISIS or Daesh or whatever you want to call it or whatever it will be called tomorrow is so attractive to some people. You understand why we in the West fail to understand it constantly, both the, the, the mainstream and the dissent. And um, I think that, uh, that uh, this uh, blindness uh, is far from being a, a coincident. We are, sup- we are trained to be blind, and uh, this uh, won't change unless we speak up. And this is what I try to do, this is what you are doing, and this is the relevance of the wandering rule. So, so I want to get your comment on on this. Let's 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 start off. Let's get into this subject now. Let's get into the identity politics. So, before we had the war on terror for a number of years, 
ostensibly since 2001, September 11, 2001. It was branded the crisis, the international crisis, the clash of civilization was yes. illustrated within the, uh, uh, the framework or the brand of the war on terror. And the sub brand would have been the, the, the cast of characters as Al Qaeda, uh, Osama bin Laden, etc. This has now been rebranded just this year, Gilad, to the war on radical Islam. Yeah. And and the problem I have with this is radical Islam or radical, just the word radical. And I need this is where we need your help because I know you. This is your wheelhouse, as they say. Yeah. The word radical is a political uh, um, adjective. It's a political term. It's not religious. <laughs> and so this has been superimposed on the on the Western conversation now. Can you help us navigate? Yeah, it, why? It, it, why? It is, it is very, very interesting. I'll tell you something that uh, you probably hear for the first time because no one really speaks about it. Um, when it comes to Christianity or the Christian world, we have a clear dichotomy between the civil and the religious, between the, the, the law, the civil law, and the theocentric ethos. And why? Because uh, Christianity, the way it evolves, it penetrated into many different cultures, many different uh, religions, and it uh, had to struggle against different systems. So it, it had to accept um, the existence of a civil law. Also, uh, we have to remember the involvement uh, of Christianity within the Roman Empire that was uh, um, that had a very developed civil uh, law system, civil system. Now, when it comes to Islam and Judaism, there is no such distinction. There is no distinction between the civil and the religious. In other words, in both Judaism and Islam, the religion provides you with the answers regarding all different matters of life. Uh, your relationship with your uh, wife, uh, the work, um, you know, uh, work ethics and your pro issues with, uh, with your boss and so on and so on and so on. Now, in the 19th century, Jews, I'm not talking about Judaism, Jews went through a very serious metamorphosis. They uh, uh, decided, they invented themselves, as Shlomo Zand uh, says, as a nation. And they introduced kind of a dichotomy between the civil and the religious. Uh, and this debate, this conflict between the civil and the, civil and the religious is very uh, um, vibrant in Israeli politics. Israel becomes more and more along the, along the years, it's becoming more and more religious. And uh, obviously the religious party 
believe that Israel should be a Alaha country. Alaha, which is the main uh, religious, uh, it's like the Sharia of the Jews. Yeah. Now, what we see now is a lot of Jews who are dominant, not dominant in within our Western uh, world, within politics, media, academia are trying to impose exactly the same dichotomy on Islam. As if there is a difference between, uh, or dichotomy between the civil and the religion in Islam. There isn't. There isn't. As much as for Orthodox Jews, there is no such a dichotomy. So we start, the first symptom of of this tendency was the invention of the word Islamism. Islamism. We never heard about Islamism. It was a kind of a new thing that they appeared, I don't know, seven or ten years ago. What is Islamism? Islamism is doing to Islam what Zionism is doing to the Jews. Wow. Can you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so, so this is so, so to, in my mind, uh, what I'm saying that, uh, so Islamism, what you're talking about, that so that's the the political alter ego of Zionism in a way. It, in a way, it's actually create an imaginary distinction between Islam and politics, because at the moment, for Jews, for Jews, there is a distinction between Jews and Judaism. Yeah, mm-hmm. in because 150 years ago, the people who called themselves Jews were following of the Torah and the Talmud. Yeah, there were no secular Jews. If you stop, if you become a secular Jew, you stop being a Jew. Yes. If you are a Christian, you are born Christian, and one day you say, you know, I don't believe in all this kind of thing. You know, Jesus, and I, I don't, I don't go to the church. Nah, no, I'm so. So it's not a problem. You still, you are still American. You're still a male or a female. You're still, a, you know, an accountant, but you're not a Christian anymore. But, but hold on. But they're, they're starting to do this in America. They're starting the, the new term, which has been unleashed through media and through the politicians, especially on the Republican side, that the United States, America is a nation of Judeo-Christian values. This is being repeated over and over in the last couple of years. And so- I, yeah. So why, way, why, why is that? By the way, by the way, because uh, America, that, uh, we are just let's let's finish just the, 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 this issue, this issue, and then we will address uh, what is the issue in America, which is very very interesting in itself. Uh, what we are seeing this invention of radical Islam or Islamism is an attempt to Judify the Muslims to create this kind of a, a imaginary a distinction that doesn't really exist. Now, who are the people who are leading uh, this tendency? You know, you, sp- you, you, you uh, uh, spoke earlier on about uh, um, the cultural uh, clash or clash of civilization. Yes. These all the way through are people who are tribally affiliated with Jewish ideology, 
they are basically Jewish intellectuals uh, who are uh, presenting um, and this imaginary again distinction between us and them. Us is this uh, ludicrous notion of Judeo-Christianity. What Judeo-Christianity? If anything, it was the Jews who were persecuted all, you know, all along their uh, history uh, in the West by the church. There is no such a thing, Judeo-Christianity. It's an endless battle. Yeah? yeah? So that's a political construct, really. It's a it's... political construct that is delusional. Right. It, it, it doesn't exist, you know? Mm. Judaism is embedded with goy hatred, with hatred to Jesus, with hatred to the goy. People don't know, you know, obviously, because uh, these uh, these issues are uh, are uh, well uh, suppressed. The word, for, the Hebrew word for Jesus is y- Yeshu. Mm-hmm. Yeshu is an abbreviation. It's the most horrible abbreviation of "May His Name Be Eradicated." Right. Yeah? May His Name Be Eradicated, which is something that you use for Hitler. Right. For, for the most, the biggest enemies of the Jews. So they, Jews, Jews who uh, follow Judaism, yeah, um, you know, use this abbreviation for Jesus, for the earliest man known to humanity, you know. So when Jews talk to me about, uh, talk to us about uh, Judeo Christianity, it is beyond joke. Now, the thing is, that actually, unlike Judaism, that is tribal, tribally oriented, Islam, like Christianity, is actually universal. If you want to be a Muslim, it will take you two, two minutes right. to, to join Islam. If you want to be a Jew... Mm-hmm. You will have to struggle, and you may, ne- you may never make it. If, if you want to be a Catholic, you have to go through a series of sacraments and a lot of uh, a lot of footwork and paperwork. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, but yeah. it is uh, it is durable. Yeah. You know? yeah. Now, now, because because in Judaism, in Judaism, or definitely in Jewish politics, let's say more than Judaism, because when you talk really to Orthodox rabbi. They would actually defy uh, the the. Some of them would actually argue that Judaism is is not racist, you know. And you can join, and once you join, you're you're a member of the tribe, and everything is fine. But especially Jewish politics is uniquely racist. Now, now we go back to the, to the, to your question to deal with with America. So we we what we see is all these um, these. Uh, um, uh, imaginary uh, dichotomies between us and them. Uh, these dichotomies are uh, necessary for uh, for uh, for people, let's say, within the Republican Party or people who are committed uh, to Israel, because we don't know how to handle this battle that we imposed upon ourselves. We are in a war with the Islamic world. For many years, Arab wanted 
to give us oil, but we insisted to plunder. We insisted to plunder. We went, we, we, we occupied the countries. We abused their culture. And it comes to the point now that what we see is opposition to Western and Zionist imperialism. Now, Arabs have tried different means to oppose uh, Western imperialism. It started, um, let's say, uh, with uh, in 1917, Sykes-Picot, end of World War One. We divided the European um, superpowers, cut the uh, draw lines uh, on on the atlas, and basically divided the Arabs into nation states. You know, when you look at the, the there is no map anymore of the, of the Middle East that kind of represents what is happening there. But if you look at the map that was drawn uh, like ten years old or five years old. You see Syria, Iraq, Jordan, they are straight lines. Mm-hmm. When you look at Europe, uh, you know, uh, the lines are uh, far from being straight. They are uh, defined by uh, natural borders, by river, by mountains, and so on and so on. Yes. In the Middle East, we basically saw nation states that was a non, that uh, wasn't an homegrown process. It was there to serve European and then later American interests. Arabs opposed these ideas for quite a few years. You know, you can uh, look at uh, the work of uh, Nasser, who the supreme kind of leader of uh, uh, Arab nationalism. he was extremely popular all over the world, all over the Arab world. But the shocking thing was that uh, as much as the politics was, uh, was uh, um, uh, you know, uh, um, it made a lot of sense and uh, was uh, um, uh, popular within certain circuits, you know, you can think about Nasser and the Gaddafi and the uh, Hafez al-Assad, you know, the mm-hmm. Bashar's father, yeah. uh, and Saddam himself. There is something that is very clear. The Arab soldier wasn't willing to die for Nasser mm-hmm. or for Saddam or for Bashar. Maybe for Bashar, it's a different story now, but we will talk about it in a second. The Arab soldier wasn't happy to die for the idea of a nation, nation state. Right. This is a very, very interesting uh, observation. And uh, if it wasn't clear in 1967, when a relatively small Israeli army managed to knock down five Arab national armies, in six days? Yeah, yeah. This became clear that something is wrong within this concept. And from that point, we see a growing wave of new form of 
belonging of, let's say, nationalism, through Arab nationalism, which is the commitment to the Ummah. Though nationalism wasn't strong, Islam is very victorious when it comes to the Arab world. They are happy to die for it. They are happy to fight. They are happy to fight for their land. It is consistent. It is exactly the meaning of military jihad. Military jihad says if somebody takes your land or, or disrespect your God, you knock him down. You will get him out of your land and you will make sure that he respects your God, Allah. And when this happens, then you pursue all means toward peace. This is a consistent ideology that makes sense to a lot of Arabs, also to a lot of Palestinians, mm-hmm. and to a lot of people who are Muslims and living in the West. Uh, and this is why uh, we see um, a tsunami of Muslim youngsters who actually identify with ISIS, with the success of ISIS, you know, uh, since the 650, you know, the Muslim uh, didn't see uh, such uh, the other Muslims uh, so victorious. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very appealing narrative. And here we come to, to uh, uh, you know, that's how I see those things, um, to the role of identity politics in the understanding of this entire crisis. Um, in, when we were young, you are a bit younger than me, I think. Yeah, a, little, a couple years. <laughs> I really just, that's, that's all? No, maybe like four or five. <laughs> okay, but you know, when we were young, um, there was something really appealing in left thinking. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of a, it wasn't very different from Christianity. It basically, it was all about brotherhood. Mm-hmm. The left used to tell us, you know, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a gay or black or an Arab or a Muslim. We are all together against the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. And, all, on the side of humanity and goodness. Yeah, and, and society looked like kind of a big cake and we were kind of part of a big collective, which was an appealing idea. Mm-hmm. And then, and we can talk about it. When did it start? I have some interesting ideas about it. This is kind of my part of my next book, The Wandering Two. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, um, suddenly, pretty much out of the blue, uh, we started to detect an attempt to split society into f- identity fragments. Uh, rather than seeing ourselves as a collective, we suddenly started to, to, uh, to see people talking as a, as a Jew, as a lesbian, as a woman, as a, uh, as a transvestite, as a black, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a. Rather, and this was all delivered by people who also called themselves left. So while the old left 
you know, the, the Corbins left, you know, mm-hmm. uh, was there to unite us, there was a new kind of left that actually did nothing by dividing us. Yes. Now, it is quite amazing, and we can talk a lot about it. I'll make it very short. Um, you know, if the most important thing in a society are, uh, let's say, social security, education, health, work, you know, jobs, and this is what the left was all about, suddenly we saw the left, what the left over, what the left had become, or whatever you want to call it, uh, engaged in, a, in a sectarian wars. The gays against the Muslims, the Jews, you know, it, it became, it became, rather than uniting us all against the globalization, monopolies, and so on and so on, you know, the left became totally dysfunctional. Now, we can talk uh, quite a bit about it. It is not very complicated to uh, identify why it happened and who were the leading advocates of this philosophy. Mm-hmm. This is actually something that was imposed on us by the so-called cultural Marxist that was basically a very... Jewish school. You're talking about the Frankfurt, the Frankfurt the, school. It's Frankfurt school. It's Wilhelm Reich. Uh, you know, some figures like Andrea Dworkin did it. They tried to do it to women and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. It was basically a synagogue. Now, why? Why there was such a bond between the left and the, this cultural Marxist? Very easy to explain. Because and it's quite devastating what I'm about to say. Both the left and the tribal cultural Marxists don't really like working class. In fact, they hate working class. Now, this is the most peculiar thing to say. Because the left sees itself as the representative of the workers. And the, but by the way, there is no doubt that uh, some leftists are. You know, uh, yeah. this, is, this is the transition that we see now. In Britain, you know, suddenly we have a true working class, uh, you know, uh, transition, which is very interesting. Now, why, what is the problem uh, that the left has with the working class? It's very easy to, to explain. The working class, you know, in spite of the fact that they are supposed to be supported by the left, the working class themselves never vote for the left. They vote for the Tories or for the Republicans. And why? It is very easy to explain. Because if you are a working person, you don't have to identify as a working person. You know that you are a working person because you, you are in Detroit and the, the 6 o'clock in the morning you go to work in Ford. Mm-hmm. All right? They don't need this identity spiel, this identity uh, pretentious game. It's, it's no longer necessary uh, in, in the 21st century as it, as it was 30, sure. 40, 50 years For ago, sure. right? Now, now, it goes one step farther. Because the, there is another reason why nationalists, uh, the working class, prefer to stick to the flag rather than, you know, placards uh, that are given to them by uh, some leftists. Why? 
Because if you are a working class and you carry the flag, you landed on the moon, you won World War II, you've been in Normandy, there are a lot of things to take, you know, from this national ethos. And the left has very, very little, it's too abstract, it has very little to offer, and this is why left is always appealing more to kind of middle class. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know the statistics, but I'm sure that Bernie Sanders appealed to more kind of middle class. Yes, a- yeah, social justice, the whole concept, of, yeah, uh, yeah, it exactly. appeals to middle class, university yes. students, people who are upwardly mobile. Yeah, so, yeah. so there is a small uh, issue between the left and the working class, and the Jews also have a problem with the working class because it is always working class that endangers them. I think that the guy who expressed it in the most uh, uh, um, brilliant form, and I obviously don't agree with him at all, but he was at least honest about it, was Wilhelm Reich, who admitted that it, it, it was peculiar, but the German working class didn't go with the Jewish communists, they went with Hitler. Huh. You know, and he was very concerned with it, you know, and his solution was very, it was amazing. You know, to introduce sex to kids. You know, he believed that the working class, the problem of the, the of working class is that they suffer from mass conservatism. And in order to make them revise their thought and think properly, they need to be liberated. And sex was uh, was the the way to do it. So if you ask yourself why we have so much kind of um, pedophilia now in working class, uh, in Britain, you know, the Jimmy Savile and Glitter and all these characters, and, you, you know, go to Tavistock Hill and, uh, and uh, look for the influence of uh, Willem Reich. Now, now I think that we, we are ready to hit the crux of the matter. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is how it goes. The first people who realized that that cultural Marxism is, how the Brits say, loads of bollocks. It's a dangerous game. It is sinister. It is sickening. The first people to understand that there is a problem there were the Zionists. Now, this sounds bizarre. Why the Zionists? Because the Zionists, unlike Americans and Brits and French, Jews are playing with identity politics for the last 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, it's something that now, you know, like, if you want to understand what is happening in the world, we, we now let the Goim play a bit, kind of pretend that they are Jews, you know, right. you know, you know, rather than synagogue, we give you Facebook. You know, Jews are doing Facebook for 3,000 years, social yes. networking. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Twitter, yeah. Now we come Zuckerberg said, oh, you know, you let, let give the goim a bit. And now they are very concerned because the goim start to get together. They, they, you know, we have to stop them. So we use, <laughs> use, use Facebook now as the police, you know, to, to, to stifle your freedom to behave like Jews. Anyway, um, when it comes to, to cultural Marxism, the Zionist really understood what was going on there. And they could see that the Jews start to talk as the Jew, as the Jew, as the Jew, but it means nothing. It means nothing. What does it mean to talk as a Jew in America 
you know that you lie that you know that uh, that uh, what is the name of this uh, uh, never mind um you know that uh, Jewish intellectuals can come and tell you oh in the name of our uh, Jewish heritage humanism there is no humanism in Jewish heritage they're lying when they try to talk to Jews it means nothing and the Zionist so, came to diaspora Jews after 67, in the 70s, in the 80s, and they said, rather than talking as a Jew, which means nothing, come to Israel and be a Jew. Come to Israel and be a Jew. We will give you, uh, we'll teach you how to fly F-16, or to drive a tank, or to <laughs> shoot a gun. And every month, 12 months, we will have an operation in Gaza, and you will be able to, uh, to flatten the the you know the the life of uh, hundreds of thousands of people and then every weekend you can go to the beach in tel aviv you know and meet some uh, jewish girls this is what it means to be a jew in the late 20th century early 21st century let, let me just interject quickly a lot of people don't know unless they're au fait with israeli things that you don't have to be israeli to serve in the idf if you're jewish you can go there and kind of do what is it like a kind of extended holiday camp or for sure yeah so for sure. and thousands and thousands of people do this every year right and by the way by the for sure you are totally right And it is, it is, it is totally understood, you know. If you are 18 years old, American, in Brooklyn, you have two possibilities, or maybe three, for four, you know, but one possibility is to go to university and to start your life and to, you know, learning how to become a dentist and hopefully within five years to join your father's clinics and basically your life is gone. You know, it's very boring. On the other end, you can be, you get on the first Elal airplane, you come to Israel, you join the Israeli army. It's quite a safe army. They are very good in killing, but uh, you know, they are basically not very brave to engage in full combat. And when they tried it, they always kind of uh, get horrified by the consequences. Uh, so it's quite a safe army. It tried to kill uh, Arabs, uh, hopeless Palestinians from afar. Uh, you learn to drive a tank or an airplane. Uh, it's a unique experience. And ideally, uh, from their perspectives, uh, you, you meet a nice uh, Jewish girl. And, and this is why Israel is very, very, very attractive. For diaspora Jews. I'm not sure that it's very attractive for Israeli, by the way. Yeah, yeah. A lot of Israelis, uh, you know, would, would uh, you know, there were some statistics that, like, as I remember, if I remember correctly, like 70% would leave tomorrow if they get a green card and, I don't know, four or five thousand dollars, you know? So, so I see some match, matching attributes here. So the, you know, Israel as a concept, as a destination is a lot more attractive, let's say, to diaspora Jews than it is maybe to Israelis living there sure. where, where sure. and the Islamic state is much more attractive to diaspora Arabs or, oh, sure. or Muslims is, than it is for actual Arabs living in the Middle East, right? Got it. And this is exactly the, 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 the main point here. The Israel comes to the diaspora Jew and tells him where stop talking as a Jew. It means nothing. Come to Israel 
and be a Jew. Mm-hmm. The Islamic State is selling exactly the same product. It says, <laughs> you know, stop talking as a Muslim in France. What does it mean? To be a Muslim in France? It's a disaster. You know, you cannot have your beard. You, you know, your wife cannot have burqa. You, this is not a Muslim. You know, it's um, Hollande and Valls tell you what it means to be a Muslim. Come to Raqqa or Damascus and be a Muslim. And this is very attractive for many, many Muslims, as much as it's very attractive for many Jews. The only difference, you know, is that uh, American young kids uh, go, they serve in the Israeli army, they participate in criminal operations, they are basically, in many cases, war criminals, you know, engage themselves, complicit in, uh, or even active in, uh, in, uh, in major war crimes, and they come back to America, and they are not questioned yet. While Muslims, who are engaged in pretty similar um, adventures, come back to America, and uh, their life are ruined. And this is because the politics of the West is uh, dominated by very some very, very dangerous uh, Jewish lobbies that, by the way, pushed us into this uh, situation, pushed, uh, you know, uh, pushed uh, America and Israel and France to form, uh, you know, to, the, to help forming uh, these uh, very dangerous, um, uh, you know, um, military organizations in, in uh, Syria and in Iraq with the hope that they would topple uh, Assad, which mm-hmm. is something that everybody regrets now, mm-hmm. you know. It is quite a bizarre situation. You know, I saw uh, an article two days, three days ago uh, in, the, in the Daily Mail, you know. Uh, there are hundreds, hundreds of, uh, of uh, al-Nusra, which is basically al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. uh, soldiers, uh, wounded soldiers in Israeli hospitals. Yes. You know, uh, now al-Nusra is not Daesh, but... Uh, uh, but uh, you know it, this. This is a this is a situation that uh, is impossible uh, to resolve. And by the way, you know I understand the um, uh, military thinking. Um, when I look, when I look at the, and this is something that I argue for more than a while now. When I look at the kind of the. Uh, operation that Britain and France and America uh, are engaged in in uh, in uh, Syria, it is quite clear that they don't try to <laughs> resolve the situation at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite it's quite uh, it's quite obvious. Quite a few uh, commentators wrote about it. You know, the idea of sending four tornadoes, you know, four airplanes or twelve airplanes. <laughs> I remember. No, no, it's it's ridiculous. You know. I remember that in uh, 82, at the time of Lebanon, you know, 
um, the first Lebanon war in Israel. You know, Israel has a massive uh, air force. It's yeah. a massive air force. Uh, I don't remember, it, uh, around 350 to 400 airplanes, you know, and it's all in proximity to the Lebanese border. You know, you are talking about 20, 30, 40 kilometers. Mm-hmm. It's kind of seconds uh, when you talk about F-16, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it attempted to attack, uh, let's say, in the case of a uh, Lebanon war, uh, a few limited targets, you know, in order to destroy the PLO. Uh, in 2006, they, they did the same. Um, um, and then, uh, you know, with the Hezbollah um, and with intelligence on the ground, and they achieved nothing. Mm-hmm. They achieved nothing. So now the Brits are joining the war. They have a parliamentary discussion. And they send four tornadoes to Cyprus. It's mm. a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. Yeah. So, so it's not. It's it, it, the, clearly the the uh, the military objective. Although in the public, from a public relations point of view, it's to defeat ISIS. But clearly, the objective is to topple the government in Damascus to topple the nation state. I, I, you know, I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure even that. Uh, that, that definitely, this is where the job, the Jewish lobby, wanted us uh, to go in 2013, mm-hmm. and uh, and it, uh, you know, and I think that both uh, Cameron. And Obama, you were very sophisticated uh, in the way in which they found their way out of it. Yes. You know, uh, I even say Cameron. I think that Cameron brought it to the parliament with the hope that he would be stopped. Um, I, I, but and, and, and Obama was definitely even more sophisticated. Yeah. Uh, but um, what do they want now? I think... I think that you know when we talk about when we talk about when we look at the at, at the region, it is very clear to me that there is one country, one state, one military force that uh, has a, a deep uh, that follows a, a deep, uh, well thought planning, and these are the Russians. Uh, and by the way. I, I know that some of your uh, listeners wouldn't like what I'm saying. I think that Russia uh, primarily serves uh, Russian interests. You know, I don't think that they are uh, uh, there primarily to save the uh, uh, Assad regime. It's that the Assad regime uh, is important uh, for uh, Russia because it allows the Russians to have a port. Uh, no, absolutely. In, in, the, in the Middle East, you know, it diverted the attention from the mess in uh, Crimea. There are a lot of there are a lot of issues here. Well, but, yeah, beyond that, there's also the Iranian uh, connection to Syria and to Lebanon, which is a very strong uh, link there across Iraq. And geopolitically, uh, Russia is absolutely uh, wanting to, you know, attach itself to that. Uh, alliance that block. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so. I think, I think, I, I, I think that it's very clear what he's doing, uh, to me at least. And uh, what is amazing is that uh, you know we are m- moving now uh, rapidly. Uh, I hope that I'm wrong uh, towards a conflict, and it is very clear that uh, unlike Russia, that as 
a qualified leadership, yeah? So a person like Putin is a person that went through hell of a lot of training before he became the leader of this uh, big country. You know, he was a military and KGB and so on and so on and so on. He passed through kind of a, a long uh, struggle to the top, an hierarchic struggle. When it comes to the West, our leaders are short-time lived in terms of politics. They have zero uh, um, training to the job. Uh, you know what, what Cameron did that qualified him to take such decisions or, or land. You know, uh, here in America, uh, you are extremely lucky because um, uh, your president managed to understand where he's standing on some issues in just seven years. Usually it takes them 30 years after they're out of office. Yeah, yeah. that Israel maybe you know he took Carter you know he's a nice guy you know Jimmy Carter but you know he didn't understand it when he was in office mm-hmm. that Israel is apartheid you yes. know it was yeah. you know yeah, I don't think that it's apartheid it's far worse than apartheid yeah mm-hmm. why does he take them you know so uh, President Obama it's incredible he understood something while being in the office you know which leaves him kind of 20 days to sort things out but uh, this, that's the, the way the system is operating in the West, in the so-called uh, democratic world, what is left out of it, is actually there to facilitate these very strong lobbies. And there is no doubt that uh, when it comes to foreign policy, the Jewish lobby is the strongest the most influential, and this is why we are in a devastating battle against Islam. Now we come back to the to, to you know initial question. This is why we are in a situation that uh, is pretty much uh, spiraling now. It's getting out of control because once violence is out there. In the open, then it, it, these issues are impossible to control. Then you start to hear people like uh, Trump uh, talking, uh, saying some horrid things about Muslims and, uh, you know, to ban their entry. Uh, and uh, there is no much you can do about it because there is a conflict. Yeah. You know, um, my job, again, as I said, this was the first thing I said today, is not to tell people what to do or what to think, but to help people to understand how to refine the question, to understand what are the issues that we are up against, you know. And it was very interesting earlier this week that he said, actually, it's the identity politics. I can read the wandering who now, and I can see that it's all about identity politics. The people who go to fight in in France, you know, the Muslims who go to fight in France or sometime, uh, you know, even bring this war uh, to, to Paris are people that are actually identifying with Islam. 
It's not Islam. Which, which is a political, that's a political, it's a move that's political, it's not religious, right? Yeah. By the way, by the way, this is, this is a big question. As we know, uh, I, I hear a lot of leftists who never in their life uh, opened the, the Quran uh, telling you, oh, this is not Islam, this is that, you know. Let's stop for a second. It's not very, very simple. I, I'm not uh, definitely not uh, not going to uh, pass judgment on what is Islam or who is Muslim or who is not. But what we have to understand that when it comes to religion, a lot of people, both Judaism within Judaism and Islam, we have different interpretation of what Judaism and Islam mean. Uh, so. Those those kids that are doing the most uh, horrendous things, they sometimes actually do believe that this is a, a kind of martyr doom. Uh, I, within my uh, identity paradigm, have a very good, very uh, efficient solution to this issue. Whether they are Muslims or not Muslims, you know, this is not something that you and me uh, or anything that is not a Muslim can really debate. What we can accept that in many cases they identify as Muslims. And then the next question that we have to ask, the question, again, rather than the answer, the next question, what does it mean to identify as Muslims. Once we start to understand this question, we may be able to proceed further and to find the solution and to bring peace around. And, and I think this this is where the big, to me, where the big gap is now. People like yourself, people like me, uh, who've been lucky enough and other people listening to travel, to live in other countries, to live in other cultures, to experience uh, other lifestyles religiously uh, with regards to all the trappings of culture, food, music, uh, politics, uh, local politics, ethnic politics, okay? Yeah. So I, I was exposed to m many of these things, and in the Muslim world too. So, you know, I've lived in cultures where it's half Christian, half Muslim, in, in Lebanon, for instance. And yeah. so, and, and it wasn't a sh it wasn't run by Sharia law, but there's a, there's an obsession in America, and I see this coming out of the same media outlets and individuals that are very pro-Israel, uh, like all the talk radio personalities in America, Mark Levine, Sean Hannity, uh, Michael Savage in a way, maybe not so much, but along those lines. And, uh, and I see this commonality and Fox News. They're all pushing this idea of a Sharia law takeover and that, uh, that this is, this is what all Muslims live by Sharia law. So they're, it's, they're superimposing. By the way, by the way, we look at Sharia law and think of it as the most devastating thing. Again, I'm not an expert on Sharia law, but mm -hmm. uh, the common uh, law, you know, is the, the ideas of uh, equality between men and women and so on and so on, even in British law, is actually inspired by Sharia law, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, from, yeah. Yeah, 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 you know, um, so derived is derived, but, you know, English is not my language, but, uh, but um, um, you know, we, Sharia law 
is not necessarily an horrible thing. You know, we, have, we are talking about Islamic civilization that is, is beautiful, you know, and uh, we didn't have any issues uh, with it in the kind of Europe or the West, uh, let's say, for many hundred uh, years, you know. Mm-hmm. You, are, you are traveling in Southern Europe and you see the impact uh, of Islam, you know, and you, if you learn uh, philosophy of science or history of science, and you see the impact of a, a mathematician, you know, the influence uh, or the contribution uh, of uh, algebra and so on, and so on, it's quite incredible, you know, and the... Uh, uh, and in politics, Gilad, and in common law, and... The, it, exactly. It's, it's and, uh, impacted. It's impacted European common law, and people are not aware of that for the most part. I think. For for sure, for sure. And why they're not aware of it? Because because our media, our media is recruited to the Jewish struggle. Mm-hmm. Now, now we are now engaged in a war with. Billion Arabs for no reason, mm-hmm. for no reason. You know, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the absurd here is that they even from econ- economy perspectives, you know, the uh, the oil uh, companies were from the very beginning against. This uh, this uh, uh, expansionist uh, dreams, uh, neoconservative dreams. We are dealing with, we are uh, facing now the consequences of uh, orid Zionized schools of thoughts, mainly the neoconservatives. I'm referring now to that managed to push us into a colossal war. Now, we have to find the way, the way to, to uh, withdraw. Uh, and by the way, I think that, uh, you know, uh, um, Obama actually uh, realized, uh, President Obama, I should say, uh, realized uh, at a certain stage what we are up against, uh, who pushed us into it, and this is the really, you know, from uh, maybe it's too early to talk about it, but from an historical perspective, when people review is the first term and second term and the change of personal, personnel and so on and so on, uh, people will be able to see that uh, he was actually acting uh, forcefully uh, towards disengagement. I believe that disengagement is is the way forward. And what do I mean by it? I insist, wherever I go, that interventionism is a disaster. Mm-hmm. It is a disaster. Uh, and that it's, it's a disaster that uh, uh, can be attributed largely to this new left I'm sure uh, that you remember that the people who started to campaign for intervention in in uh, in uh, in uh, Afghanistan 
you know, uh, <laughs> already in the, in the late 90s, were feminist and lesbian lobbies. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you, yeah, for you, women's rights. So it was women, women. world war waged uh, on behalf of uh, women's rights uh, everywhere in Afghanistan, the exactly. Taliban, etc. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, now what we have, this is something very important. I go back to identity politics. When we manage to split society into a mini SA fragments, as a Jew, as a woman, as a lesbian, as a gay, as a black, yeah? We actually um, create um, a society that looks like a, a manifold of synagogues. Why I say synagogues? Because each of these margins of each of these groups or identitarian groups is part of an international identity, yeah? Mm -hmm. So the lesbian are not just the lesbian in America, they are connected with the lesbian in Britain, in France, and to a certain extent in Afghanistan. Right. The gays. There is a continuum between the gay in America, London, Paris, Turkey... One f one rainbow flag, yeah, a, ra a rainbow flag, one for one yeah, world, yeah. And this is exactly how the Jewish works, the Jewish the Jewish world works politically, yeah. We have the, these Jewish lobbies that are connected tribally all over the world, and who is the person who funds all those lobbies? Mr. Mm -hmm. George Soros. Sure, yeah, George right? Soros, yeah. Okay, who is? A tribal light Zionist Jew mm -hmm. who is committed to all, you know, basically, you know, it's a genius, a devious yet genius act on, on his part because, because uh, uh, <laughs> he managed to buy international influence while investing very little. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to buy an American general, it will cost you a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You go to the American general and tell him, listen, man, I want you really to buy my uh, my new uh, missile, uh, anti-tank missile. He tell you, listen, what do you mean? You know, if it's good, I'll buy it. He said, no, I'm not so sure that it's very good, but I want you to buy it. You know, you will have to give him a lot of money. You, you offer him 10 million quid. So I'm not going to risk my reputation, you know, for 10 million dollars. You know, you have to give him 200 million. But to buy a, a, a lesbian a leader or a Palestinian a Palestinian a kind of a gay leader, well, it costs you give them you you you, you give them a holiday in 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 Washington, and they know what they want you to say. And a free you know, speaking at a seminar or speaking at a seminar, or working a, for an NGO or yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a very very ugly game and this is how we i have the evidence of um, you know uh, there was this woman who tried to organize a bds gay tour sarah schulman she's in a so new york for our listeners bds is a boycott um and deinvestment of israel right yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah so this uh, american uh, uh, 
um, academic, uh, gay studies or whatever, she decided she, she was a Zionist and then she became pro-Palestinian and she wanted to do a gay BDS tour. And uh, she needed uh, $30,000 and she didn't know where to get this money. And somebody told her, why don't you uh, contact uh, this? It's in her book. Uh, uh, if your listener wants, I can, I can give you the... It's on my website, you know, so I can give you the... Uh, yeah, we'll, the have, we'll, we'll have a link to your website um, during, you know, after the show. There'll be a link on the show page. So you provide us with that link. I'll get it straight I, up there. I, yeah, I, I can give you the exact page. She's basically, I, it's almost verbatim what I'm saying here. This Sarah Schulman, she needed money for this gay tour, and somebody told her, why don't you uh, contact um, um, George Soros uh, Open Society Institute? Mm-hmm. And in the Open Society Institute, only listen, it's a brilliant idea, talk to our people in Amman, in Jordan. And when she's, and now we are talking about 2008 or something, yeah? Mm-hmm. When she spoke with the, um, with the lady in Amman, the lady in Amman told her, you know, it's a great idea. We send you the money straight away because this will help us to promote gay affairs uh, in Egypt and Iran. Mm-hmm. So here we see. Jewish money from New York traveling to Jordan, to Palestine, back to America, yeah, in order to promote gay, uh, gay affairs uh, in the Islamic world. This is how we interfere. This is how we intervene. On the one end, we have the right-wing Jewish lobby, yeah, uh, APAC that uh, screwing up this uh, the Arab world, um, inflicting all these wars on them. And on the other end, we have the good George Soros, you know, that destroying these Arab countries from inside. Yeah, yeah, that that's through a process of uh, uh, applied behavioral yes. uh, psychology through NGOs, through yes. common purpose. And it's black yeah. and white, black and white, the Open Society Institute, is something that is operating in the open, pushing for those uh, those kind of a, a marginal fragmentation of uh, societies. By the way, not just the Arab world, also our societies. Our society is completely broken and fragmented due to the work of this uh, devious uh, George Soros. Which, which is, cult- he's pushing a cultural Marxist uh, technology, social technology, which is yeah. effectively com- breaking up, compartmentalizing, getting people, neighbor to fight against neighbor, uh, dividing everybody up according to various political, gender, ethnic, whatever identities, class identities yeah. even. And, yeah. uh, and it's very effective. Now, that quickly, this brings us to a comrade in arms of sorts of George Soros. His name is Mr. Sheldon Adelson. And there's also Mr. Uh, Seth Clareman as well. So there's a big talk about reform. And the back of all this terrorism and all these, what I believe many of them are false flag events, that's debatable up to whoever wants to look into those events on their own merits. But the point is, on the back of this, the Paris attacks, on the back of ISIS, we see this talk in U.S. media, which is, we need to reform Islam. And you have people 
people like Hershey Ali, uh, who is a uh, Muslim whistleblower, and Gert Wilders, and yes. Pamela Geller, and all these various pundits, even Muslim pundits, talking about reforming Islam. So yes. it's, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly who's directing this effort. However, <laughs> but, but I can see the fingerprints, and so I just follow the money, Gilad, and what do I sure. find? What do I find? The American Islamic Congress. Okay, and some of these other uh, organizations calling for this reform of Islam uh, in America to begin with, uh, this kind of what appears to be some sort of controlled opposition or, or just full-on opposition, uh, we find financial connections with Sheldon Adelson, uh, yeah, Seth Clareman, and the backers of the Israel Project. Same people. For sure, for sure. and this is this is exactly... Um, where 3,000 years of diaspora politics, yeah, diaspora identity politics is um, making uh, the, the Jews um, or those kind of Jews lobbyists um, put them slightly ahead of uh, anyone else. However, however, we are learning fast. We are learning fast, you know, uh, uh, and I take some credit for it because uh, I expose, you know, the the this Jewish politics left, right, and center. You are right. You are right. Um, the, the people like Edelson, they understand very quickly that um, probably little investment they can destroy um, Islam from inside. And it works very sim in a very similar manner or method to uh, Open Society Institute, George Soros, the other tribal uh, um, colleague, you know, uh, that is doing exactly the same thing to, to our countries. Yeah, well, uh, Soros is doing it through osmosis, whereas uh, Adelson's doing it through more blood trauma force, I think. Yeah, yeah, but, 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 and by the way, uh, it won't surprise you that uh, there are a uh, few people uh, within the uh, American uh, Arab or Muslim community that are, that are willing to take it. By the way, by the way, I am what some people, especially Jews, would uh, regard as a self-hater, yeah? Um, a self-hating Jew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm Alan Dershowitz calls you. Exactly. I, I, when they call me a self-hater Jew, I usually correct them and say, I'm not a self-hater. I'm a proud self-hater. You know, uh, I, I, made, I, I, I uh, try to make my self-hatred into a categorical uh, no, you know, understanding. Now, um, the, issue, the issue here that I also accept that uh, some Muslims uh, really don't like uh, what they see or feel very uncomfortable with actions of other people who also call themselves uh, uh, Muslims. And we have to accept that this is a dynamic uh, issue. And this is, uh, it took Judaism few a few hundred years to develop a diasporatic culture, an exilic culture. And it may as well take uh, Muslims. Um, some uh, some time to develop uh, uh, a similar uh, a similar attitude. Although I, I believe that it will be slightly 
slightly different in nature because uh, Islam is, uh, I believe, more genuine and universal. Um, In order to make the difference, to make clear that people understand the difference between Judaism and Islam, because I mentioned that they are very similar in terms of uh, no dichotomy between uh, uh, civil and religious, Mm -hmm. there is one big difference between Islam and Judaism, or Jewish identity. Once Jews follow this kind of big wave of secularization, yeah, from mid-19th century, or let's say even the beginning of 19th century, they didn't drop their ethnic affiliation, they sustained their tribalism, and reduce it into kind of a racially oriented uh, discourse. They just drop God. So the Jews, many of them, drop God. We say we don't believe in God, but we are still Jews. Yes. Very, very strange. Now, you don't believe in good, in God, but you are still a Jew. What does it mean? That you are chosen. You don't want to give up on your chosenness. Yes. If for religious Jews, chosenness was really a kind of a a burden of a moral excellency, when it comes to the secular Jews, like Max Blumenthal or or Soros, or Benjamin Netanyahu, Mm -hmm. we are left just with... Jewish tribal supremacy. Exceptionalism, supremacy. Now, when it comes to Muslims, I don't see any of it. What do I mean? When a Muslim stops being a Muslim, he becomes an Arab. Or if he lives in America, he becomes just American. Mm -hmm. You know? And they don't say, I'm a Muslim, unless... They believe in God. Now, this strong commitment, religious commitment, actually puts the Muslims well ahead of Jewish politics. Because some Muslims may decide at a certain stage that they don't want to be Muslim. Mm-hmm. Their decision, you know, I, I uh, you know... Um, we, we can see it. I'm sure that it happens uh, in many places, even in the Arab world. But the Muslims who, who uh, are committed to the religion uh, will have to deal with it through their ethics that is highly developed in their religion. It's a universal ethics, unlike Judaism. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, especially when it comes to Shia, Shia Islam, you know, uh, uh, we have so many, so many um, stories we learn now, we, we come across now about uh, the way uh, the Iranian regime uh, reacted to, to uh, uh, WMD attacks from, uh, from Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. It was the religious clerics said, yes, we are subject to these WMD attacks. But we won't react the same way because it is inconsistent with Islam. 
Mm -hmm. Which is exactly the opposite of what the Israeli lobby and the the Christian right are saying about the Iranians for the last, you know, how many years. Exactly. And by the way, this is why I don't buy into anything they tell us also about that. I basically don't buy into anything the BBC or CNN or Fox News are uh, telling us. And I actually also don't buy into democracy now or democracy later, as I, I used to <laughs> tell them. You know, I really try to form, uh, you know, to <laughs> it become very, you know, to form my ideas through questioning. Well, well, we'll find we'll find the answers to those questions eventually. But this this brings us to the one million dollar question, or the one dollar question, probably, um, is that for right now in America you have uh, the, the complete in Europe the complete. De- I saw French police last night, uh, basically coming in full gear into a uh, most you know just a normal restaurant like a Moroccan restaurant. Pounding through the doors, went into the toilets when pe- pe- someone was in the toilet. There was no lock on the door, and shaking the whole place down. Uh, and they, they went upstairs. They found a prayer room where there was nothing there but a mat, and they said it was illegal. Pl- a prayer room was illegal, and ex- so full on thuggery uh, on behalf of the French, <laughs> and total demonization in America. And so here's the question: Now, how is the how how is Islam or how are Muslims going to come out eventually come out the other end of this this paradigm that we're currently going through? And we only have to look at history. What happened to the Orthodox Christians during the Soviet Union? What happened? They went underground. Did their faith get weaker or stronger as a result of the persecution? And your experience, you can tell us what's going to happen because you you can comment on this from from a, the Jewish perspective or from the uh, Christian perspective uh, in Ro- early Roman Bi- Byzantine Christian perspective, what is going to be the result of the persecution right now? You know, I I uh, I, I avoid uh, any uh, prophetic uh, uh, comments. I also would be uh, um, very careful, you know, comparing between uh, Greek Orthodoxy and Judaism and uh, Islam. Uh, one, many years ago, uh, a Muslim convert um, um, shared with me a very interesting observation. He said, you see, when it comes to Jews, when they are under oppression, uh, they dump God. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is amazing, you know, because, you know, after after World War II, so many Jews said, you know, if this is what uh, God uh, is all about, you know, and he you, didn't look after in Auschwitz. And you spoke uh, about that in your book in detail as well. Yeah, maybe I don't even remember now. But, but, but then she said, and look what happens to Muslims when they are under pressure. So there is Muslim nationalism and blah, 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 you know, Arab nationalism, Arabs, when they are under pressure, they go to Allah. They become more and more religious. And if the idiotic French government, and it's a uniquely idiotic government, uniquely idiotic, this Hollande is a, is a, is a, is a disaster. It's a total disaster, Hollande involved. You know, uh, they only bringing more disasters on themselves. And again, it is not a coincidence. Who is the person that pushed France into this interventionist war, uh, wars, into Libya, uh, advocated the, the attack on Syria, and all in the name of moralism. Sarkozy? 
No, a Jew called Bernard Henry Levy. Ah, yes. Bernard BHL. A man who, you know, uh, claimed to be a philosopher, a uniquely minor thinker, a uniquely minor thinker uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, a lot of um, dead, dead, you know, blood, blood on, on his hands. I saw him on CNN the other day or a clip on the news and he was yeah. basically uh, pushing some, you know, the same old colonial line basically but you have him in your book it's in the in your book is called the uh the a to z the definitive israeli lexicon uh by gilad atzman and enzo apicella and under france it says france the country that gave the world voltaire balzac and bernard henri la vie <laughs> yeah 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 exactly you know so the you know i it is probably adequate to to refer to him as see you next Tuesday, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's a horrible guy. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 the, the idiotic French government, uniquely idiotic, you know, and it's actually already two idiotic French government, um, you know, were hijacked by his moronic uh, philosophy. Now, uh, I know that uh, Lapin uh, was uh, defeated uh, yesterday uh, in the second round, but her success on the first round definitely suggests that the French people, that the French people actually want something else, and this is boiling into uh, into a disaster, into a disaster. You know, uh, you know, we can. Uh, we can see what the way the French government is treating Dieudonné and Alain Soral and the uh, um, Egalitaire Reconciliation, which is their, or, or the organization uh, of Soral. They present them as fascists and haters. You know, I gave lecture, uh, some talks, lectures or whatever, to Egalitaire Reconciliation, uh, and uh, I've never in my life so so many, um, you know, uh, people of different origins, Arabs and black and French, you know, and many of them, the talks are like 600 people, 500 people, you know, mm-hmm. and talks that take sometimes five and six hours of intellectual deliberation and the philosophy of egalitarian reconciliation is very simple. They say, hey, listen, we are France, we are French. If you are a Muslim, if you are an Arab, if you are uh, from Africa, you are here, you are French, just come and accept that we are France and be one of us. And this is actually actually a very interesting solution. And a lot of foreigners are keen to follow it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, the, the most popular uh, uh, movement in France now. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And, uh, and it is chased by the government. It's incredible. Wow, that, that that to me, is, uh, they embody the republic, uh, all the yeah. principles of the republic. Why yeah. would, why would they yeah. be chased by the government? Because uh, because because uh, they are just too they are too popular, mm-hmm. and uh, they are in opposition to Jewish lobby. Right. Not to Jews, you know. Uh, I I have been uh, two weeks ago. I gave a talk in uh, Lille with uh, Jacob Cohen, 
Mm-hmm. And you know, and the room was packed. Jacob Cohen is definitely uh, a Jew. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, he is embraced by Egalité Reconciliation. And you know, if, uh, if they were as uh, um, opposing to Jewry uh, on a kind of a biological sense, you know, they wouldn't even accept me. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, I have some, definitely some Jewish genes. You know. <laughs> yeah. Levi's, you know. Levi's. <laughs> Levi's, and I believe that I have two genes, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. all right, so, so yeah, this is clear. I, I think that France, France, uh, France is a total uh, disaster. It's quite painful to watch. And mm-hmm. uh, with their kind of uh, moronic uh, leaders, and especially... This treacherous left, I don't see how they rescue themselves. You know, if you know, if they would end up uh, having to choose between Hollande and uh, Sarkozy, what a disaster! Sure, and M- Manuel Vaz is caught was you know almost insinuating that uh, they need to look at concent- the the option of concentration camps, and not even for Muslims, but for government uh, enemies of the state or you know d- exactly. dissidents. And yeah. and so he's right there in Holland's uh, sort of catchment area there. And I'm totally they, with you. They call themselves socialist. It's almost mind blowing. Man, nothing, nothing. When it comes to people who call themselves socialists, nothing uh, surprises me. It's very <laughs> different from. It's very, very different from the socialist dream I uh, uh, I believed in when I was young. For many years, I didn't understand how how is it possible that. Socialism was so attractive to me and, you know, to a, a lot of people when we, we are young and when you grow up, you see, you know, it doesn't work. What, what is going on? And at least for our generation, once we start to understand the corrosive impact of uh, cultural Marxism, of Frankfurt School, of uh, uh, this identitarian politics, all this nonsense, it is very clear. It is actually, actually... You know, when it comes to to uh, to uh, national socialism, for instance, you know, there is nothing particularly wrong about nationalism. Uh, actually, I think that it's a wonderful concept that you love your soul and uh, feel patriotic, and you love the sky uh, above you, and you eat your own grown food. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And obviously there is nothing wrong with socialism. So when it comes to national socialism, nothing is particularly wrong in the concept of national, national socialism, nationalism and socialism. What was ro- so wrong about uh, German national socialism was obviously the idea that they subscribe to biological determinism. This is the only thing that is really uniquely evil about this philosophy. Now, peculiarly, the left, the new left, follows exactly the same politics. Dividing the society into gays, black, Jews, and so on, women, is exactly following uh, the idea of biological determinism. Yes. Obviously, I cannot talk as a woman because I am not. Mm-hmm. So I'm excluded politically from this group because of biology. I cannot talk as a black 
because as much as I love jazz and made it into my way of living, I'm not black. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not gay. And I'm not uh, LGBT and so on and so on. The left, <laughs> in the name of the fight against fascism, yeah, mm-hmm. actually ended up subscribing to the most devastating the biological determinist philosophy. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, well, that, that, that is the natural progression. Yeah. Uh, that's the natural progression of that, that kind of yeah. uh, politicized ideology, actually. And, yeah. it, you know, we have a history as our guide. But um, yeah. the, the effects of it are devastating uh, when you sort of join them together with a number of other things that are happening in the world, too. And um, so th- this brings us to the geopolitics. And I know you've got to go pretty soon. So we'll round yeah. it. We'll try to round it out here. You talk about the, you know, the, 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 the politics of negation uh, in yeah. the wandering who in, in relation to the you know moral interventionists and the neoconservatives and the war on Islam and okay so that's that's where that's the juggernaut that we're currently on right now and we're approaching some sort of a conclusion there uh, might be a long painful drawn out conclusion but we're approaching it nonetheless but then this brings us to how is this affecting Western society? And here's what I am observing. I'm observing the Israelification or the Zionification of Western society. We have pundits lined up around the block like Aaron Cohen and all these security experts from Israel saying that, you know, we need, and our people are saying, what does, can Israel tell us what, how do they do? I hear this every minute now. How yeah. can the Israelis need to tell us how to deal with the terrorist threat? And we have this thing which you, is to yeah. me the most brilliant term ever invented. It's called pre-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. this is yeah. where we're at right now as a society, pre-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll summarize uh, these two uh, terms uh, for you. Um, yeah, I take uh, I take credit for pre-traumatic stress, although I, thought, I see that it's now kind of uh, people start to use it in the dictionary. A lot of people um, sometimes, a, lo- a lot of people perform symptoms of a post-traumatic stress. You know, we know about people who were uh, face encountered some awful scenes in the battlefield or women with men and so on and so on and so on. And these uh, issues uh, affect their life uh, long after the event and so on and so on. When it comes to Jews, when it comes to Jews, I argue the Jewish politics is a unique form of, uh, of developing pre traumatic stress. When it comes to the Jews, you know, uh, they manage to torment themselves by an imaginary event. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so the Israelis invent uh, an Iranian uh, um, nuclear holocaust weapon, nuclear yeah. bomb or whatever, and then all their politics will uh, be uh, concerned driven by this uh, imaginary fear and uh, eventually eventually uh, the Iranian would actually feel threatened and uh, we would see a conflict yes you know? uh, now these tactics 
is used by American politicians and American media for more than a while. Yes. Now, why? Again, because they are, you are, you are actually uh, dominated by lobbies that are driven by pre-PSD, by pre-traumatic stress. You know, this, uh, is a mi- are, this is a mindset, right? Yeah, it's a mind. It's a mindset. Uh, you invent a fear, and then you you have the patriot act that would uh, re- react to this <laughs> to this uh, to this to this fear. And then eventually, eventually, the phantom menace becomes real after a period of time, right? Exactly. This, the one, the, the what is most devastating about pre-TSD, pre-traumatic stress is that uh, um, it leads to a situation where the prophecy becomes true. Why? Because, for instance, if you are dealing with the case of Israel, uh, for instance, you know, uh, it is that Israel threatened Iran on a daily basis, maybe now less, yeah, and uh, it would only take an, uh, um, you know, a misinterpretation of a movement in uh, Israel uh, airspace by Iran for Iran to react very aggressively. Mm-hmm. You understand what I mean? It, everything becomes volatile. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it. And this is a, this is a very frightening uh, situation. Again, this is something that I'm not sure that I wrote in the... In the in the wandering ooh, but there is a way to deal with it, and I'll make it very. Sh- I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it very short because it's, it it seems complicated, but it's not that complicated. Actually, every Christian should know about it. Mm-hmm. If I am aggressive towards you, we are friends, but you know, I ended up doing something very very uh, abruptly, very aggressive, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. I must accept that you may be able to react as aggressively towards me because I tend to project my symptoms towards you. The more aggressive I am towards the other, the more I am horrified by the possibility that the other may as well be as aggressive as uh, as me. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Now, this is a snowball because the more terrified I am, uh, uh, the more aggressive I am, the more I'm terrified of you, the more aggressive I become. And this leads always towards escalation. Yes. Escalation. Now, Jews don't have the means to resolve this tension. There was one Jew who came with a solution around 2,000 years ago. His name was Jesus. And he said, yeah, there is only one one way out of it. Turn the other cheek. Hmm. All right? Rather than us behaving in the West like eye for an eye, which is a Judaic concept, we have to go back to our roots and learn to turn the other cheek. 
to calm things down. Say, okay, we were we are hurt, but we take it, and we want peace. This is the solution. Now, you mentioned another issue: negation. Yeah. Yes, negation. You know, people are supposed to know who they are. So, for instance, I know that my name is Gilad. I'm a saxophonist. Uh, I'm a writer. And so on and so on. My father knew who he is. He's now retired, but you know, he woke up in the morning, he went to work in a factory. You know, he was an engineer. He knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Now, when the Jews gave up on God, and many of them did, in the 19th century, they didn't want to give up on chosenness. Yeah? They gave up on God. They dropped God. They didn't give up on chosenness. But they couldn't really understand what defined them. This is when they realized that they can be defined by negation. When you ask a secular Jew... Are you are you a Jew? He said, "Yeah." So, are you religious? No, I'm not. Re- I'm not religious. I'm, you know, I'm not religious. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Christian, but I'm not a Jew as well. They invented this identity politics that is defined by negation. You are not defined by what you are, by but what you are not. Now, there is nothing wrong about me not defining myself as a being saxophonist, but actually saying that I'm not a pianist, I'm not a, a, I'm not a pianist, I'm not a tuba player, I'm not a trombonist or whatever. But when it comes to politics, when you define yourself by what you are not, you eventually end up in so many conflicts with everyone around. Mm-hmm. And this is why the Shoah, the Holocaust, happened to the secular Jews. Germany, they were secular Jews at large mm-hmm. because they needed the negation of all the people around them in order to define themselves. This is why they came to Palestine and they said, we will have a new identity and we will be, be defined by the land. And look at it. They are now defined by the hatred of their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to make sure that these people don't drag all of us into this chaotic story because this is exactly where cultural Marxism taking us. Mm-hmm. Rather than being all of us together and finding what unites us into a collective, you see, as a Jew, I'm not a gay, I'm not a black, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And within a second, I'm set into sectarian war in, with certain identities that I didn't even see before. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so it's really tribal, it's, it's, it's more tribal uh, in a way, in many ways it's tribal, isn't it? With the, but we took the American society, an LC productive society that used to make cars and computers and everything, and we made you into the 12 Jewish tribes. And all the tribes are fighting against each other and you're falling down. You're crushing. Mm-hmm. 
know? So you have to identify the roots and to resurrect yourself. That's all. This is Gila Dachmon. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I want to thank you for your time, Gilad. And, and thank you so much. And bef- I hope that it wasn't too complicated. No, it wasn't. You know, there's a lot of areas there that we could really dive into, and we might just do that in the future. But before Anytime. you... Before you go, I, I want to tell people, I'm going to put a link up on the show page to where we can get your book. Uh, I'll probably take an Amazon link or to your website. I'm not sure if you sell directly. You know, and yeah, yeah and, and I have a new book. It's a very funny book. The, you mentioned it, uh, A to Zion. Um, it is a really, really funny book. Uh, if you want to annoy your Jewish friends, this is the perfect <laughs> No, this. But actually, I think the Jews actually like it. <laughs> no, it, 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 it makes a great package in a way. The Wandering Who by Gilad Atzmins, published by Zero Books. There's a link up on the show page. It's, it, this is a, I've got the paperback versions, but it, this is an excellent book, uh, Gilad. It, it's very useful, uh, in terms of understanding something that is way too complex to get on Wikipedia, yeah. and the definitive Israeli lexicon, uh, A to Zion, which is, uh, I, I'm going to say that the lexicon book here is, is a, it's, it's, it's supposed to be, it's beyond satirical. Let me just say that. Yeah. This is way beyond satire. This is, this is a work of genius by you and, and, uh, uh, his, his illustrations, um, your words, and it is hilarious. It's shocking. It, it, it's horrifying and it's funny at the same time. I don't know how better to describe this book, but it is something else. I've never seen anything like it. And I recommend Wandering Who and the Definitive Israeli Lexicon. We're going to put links. Where can they get the lexicon? Where is that for sale? Yeah, yeah on, Am- on Amazon in America, all over the world. On Amazon. Okay, we're going to, we'll get that link up there as well. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Gilad Atzman, uh, joining us uh, on the live link from New York City. And uh, we're going to take a short commercial break, and we will be back after the break on the other side. We've got a, a few surprises for you there, so stick around. I'm Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Thank you, man. Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man. Better than he was before. Better. Stronger. Faster. In Sundays at noon Eastern Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the Sunday Wire for three hours of action-packed talk radio on 21stCenturyWire.com and AlternateCurrentRadio.com. <laughs> 